Welcome to Marketing Growth Conversations, a show about purposeful growth for the marketing community. We're connecting with marketing leaders to explore how they've found success in delivering growth for their businesses, teams, and careers. I'm your host, Michael Fasciano, an integrated marketing and global content leader. Like many of you, I've seen that growth for marketers is rarely a straight path. And yet with courage, strategic thinking, creativity, and grit, it's the game changer for many businesses and an incredibly rewarding career. Welcome to another episode of Marketing Growth Conversations. Is a long, boring brand message stunting your growth? My guest today is an expert in cutting your brand messaging down to grow your business up. Jeffrey Peace founded Message Mechanics to help businesses simplify their positioning to drive growth. His marketing career kicked off in top firms like Business Objects, acquired by SAP, and Oracle, where he created the Oracle Messaging Team. He went on to become CMO of Metadata Solutions and Avpoint. Today, he helps companies from startups to Fortune 100 simplify their story to drive growth. Jeffrey, welcome to the show. Well, thank you, Michael. Really happy to be here. Messaging is a topic that's near and dear to my heart. I've been working on a number of different projects these days, and it, it seems like it's something that a lot of brands are thinking a lot about right now. And so I'm just curious, as founder of Message Mechanics, what's been the core focus for you and your clients these days? Well, I don't think it's substantially changed, surprisingly, over the last couple of years. I think the need for it has perhaps, if anything, kind of intensified. Companies are confronting, and marketers in particular, are confronting a very new and disrupted landscape now. Companies that were kind of fueled by COVID-driven growth are now having to deal with uh, a different reality. And at the same time, marketing teams um, are having to deal with the reality that at least some folks in their company may think that AI should have their jobs. So for us as marketers, I think a lot of what that means is that we have to go back to one of the major sources of our value, which is what is the clearest, simplest, catchiest, most salesworthy version of a company's value proposition. And so the need to cut down, sharpen up, to drive growth by really going into a very tiny aperture of customer attention has, if anything, gotten bigger. Yeah. Yeah. What I've seen certainly during lots of moments of change over the last couple of years in terms of everything from COVID to hybrid work to just new ways of working and new market pressures like inflation, a lot of companies right now are thinking a lot about how they update their messaging so that they're clear, they're consistent, differentiated. Uh, would you say that messaging becomes particularly urgent to teams in those moments of change? Well, I, I think so. There are a number of reasons why a company might need to revamp, refocus, or, or sharpen its messaging. And some of them are are you know, quote, negative, like market disruptions, where they have to prove their value more than they ever did before. There are also actually very positive reasons why companies' messaging might fall apart and need to be redone. Just growth of a company, especially the addition of new lines of business, new product lines, can really blow up a company's messaging. In other words, your success can kill 
your positioning. Sure. I've worked with a lot of companies a few years into a pretty successful startup cycle, for example, where they do one very simple thing like triggered emails and everybody immediately understands what they do. And then they expand, they gain more customers, they increase their product lines. They're actually delivering more value. And the irony is that doesn't make it easier to convey your value. It actually makes it harder. You go from this very simple arrowhead to this sort of blunt thing where you're trying to say, yeah, we do this and we do this and we do this and we do this. And very quickly, it starts sounding like the, the grownups and peanuts, like wah, 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 wah. <laughs> It's a great point that you make where change can be both uh, an externality. For mm -hmm. instance, your industry is changing and you've got yeah. to make sure that you're finding a way to stay relevant in your industry, but it can also be a shift in your business strategy, right? Maybe you acquired a new company or you developed a new product line, or you've mm -hmm. got this new game-changing innovation that totally opens up opportunity for you. So I completely agree. And then that big enterprises like Oracle, there's just always new products and offerings being developed. And that is yes. part of the process of growing, but it also means that you're adding complexity and you need to make sure that that continues to be something that clients and prospects can navigate in an intuitive way. Yes. And if you're at a bigger company, or you're at a company that is becoming bigger, is becoming a multi-solution or multi-product company, one of the things you have to deal with is you may need actually sort of a cascade or a hierarchy of messaging. There is who is Oracle or who is Microsoft or who is whoever at the top company level. But when you get into that kind of size or even much smaller than that, when you just become a multi-product company, you may need positioning for the overall value of the company. Why do we exist? Why do we have a right to be in the market? But then as you evolve multiple products, you have multiple constituents, multiple economic buyers. And so you may need a pyramid of messaging. And yep. further, you may sometimes need to think about, okay, how do I appeal to my economic buyer but also, how do I appeal to the investors from which I may need to right. raise my next round? And it's really easy, actually, to get caught between two stools on that, where one of the things I've frequently seen companies go wrong on is they have a very simple to understand product for their economic buyer or their end consumer, but they mix the messaging for that economic buyer with the more visionary positioning that they want to create for the investor market. And right. therefore, they confuse the hell out of the people that they actually need to buy their product. Because right. there's no path to the next round of funding, the IPO, the big acquisition that doesn't go through actually selling more stuff to the people that are actually buying it from you. So sure. you have to be very careful not to let your sort of vision you're painting for investors pollute, confuse, blunt the very clear solution messaging you need for the people who actually buy your stuff. Just having clarity of the audiences and the segmentation that is driving your messaging that can all be addressed in a single narrative or it can be addressed in versions of your narrative. Uh, however you do it, you should be mindful and conscious of not 
diluting it in an accidental fashion as your scenario kind of played out. Let's dive a little bit into personal growth anchors. To complete this statement, I originally became a marketer because blank. I fell in love with computer technology and I couldn't code. And how do you define great marketing leadership today? That's a really good question because I I do believe in Dave Kellogg's maxim that marketing exists to make selling easier. It's a very reductionist, but very true version of marketing. Now that can be very strategic. It doesn't mean you're just tactical or just doing what sales asks of you, but ultimately we are there to make getting revenue and getting growth for the company easier. And so in one sense, great marketing leadership is whatever drives that. In another sense, it's being able to do that while growing a team that then themselves go on to great marketing careers. Sure. Uh, And that has everything to do with not only teaching people about growth marketing, demand generation, digital marketing, and now, of course, the use of generative AI, which I think all of us at least have to account for in our work, whether we're directly using it or not. But it also means helping people understand that one of the big ways that we make selling easier is through clarity and simplicity of story. Of course, whole books are written about this, things like story brand. But one of the things I see, perhaps this is a slight digression, but one of the things that I see that's problematic is part of storytelling is painting the picture of the problem, the pain, et cetera. It is surprising to me how many marketers do that part well and then fall down on the 10-yard line of explaining really clearly and simply how their product actually fixes that problem. And that's one of the reasons why the, the sort of the message makeover methodology that I work with clients on focuses largely on the clear and pointed description and then progressive proof of the actual solution. Yeah. So one final lightning round question. In a word or a sentence, modern marketing and great messaging are a driver of growth by doing what? Cutting it down. Yeah. Cutting it down. Distilling complexity. Yes. Distilling complexity into simplicity. And of course, in technology, that's especially important because it's sort of innately complex. But a lot of technology is technically complex, but should be conceptually simple. In other words, the reasons customers should want it should be simple. Right. The value to the business should be self-evident. Yes. Yes. Now let's shift gears a bit to some growth breakthroughs. So what were some of the formative experiences in your career that really honed your focus around brand and messaging work and and how they can drive growth for business? Hmm. Interesting question, because I didn't necessarily start there. I actually fell in love with, after a very different first career and then kind of wandering my way back into college at Cornell, I actually fell in love with computers, specifically the Macintosh, as a writer. Mm -hmm. So I guess you could say that I was involved with storytelling at that time, but it was as a user. It was not as a commercial storyteller. But then I guess my next growth moment was 
I want to make my career in this field. A week in CS 101 convinced me that that was not going to be as a developer, yeah. although I've become a little technical on the job since. So I guess my next growth moment was, what is my place in this world? And I, I fumbled around a bit to find that place in a few different jobs, but generally under the rubric of marketing. Yeah. And I guess my marketing career really started, one, when in a non-marketing role, actually in a sort of an IT role, I discovered that I was getting brought along on all the sales calls huh. because I could explain why the company's technology was valuable to our clients who were companies that were more technical than the company I was working for. Yeah. So then I, I guess I realized that storytelling commercially was kind of going to be my path. And after that, I got my first real product marketing job and kind of continued down that road. Well, I know in parallel to many of these growth moments personally you're also a songwriter and you had some growth moments as a songwriter did you want to tell us a little <laughs> yes. bit about that well i think you could say that my growth moment as a songwriter was one of them was kind of getting my ass kicked as a songwriter not literally those are usually the best growth moments right yeah well not my favorite but then in, they, they look good in retrospect let us say yeah so i learned in in a period when i wasn't working at a product marketing job I put myself under the tutelage of songwriting guru, Bonnie Hayes, who wrote Have a Heart and Love Letters for wow. Bonnie Raitt, as well as a, a number of other hit songs. And so I was writing a song a week. Basically, that was my job, was learning to be a, a pop songwriter. And that has a lot to do with compression, with emotional connection, with cutting it down. So... I was feeling pretty good that I could actually write a semi-competent song and get it recorded as a demo. Now, here's where the ass kicking comes in. <laughs> I took one of my precious, I thought, brilliant songs to a songwriter's conference. And at this time, at these conferences, they still had A&R people, the people that would basically listen to songs and evaluate them and if appropriate, pass them on to known signed artists. And so I signed up for one of these sessions in a group of people to have my song evaluated. And this happened to be like a country Nashville guy. And he put on my song and listened to it for about 40 seconds. <laughs> he never made it to the chorus. <laughs> and then he turned it off and he gave me some feedback. But the primary feedback was the turning off. Yeah. In the 40 seconds, I had failed to engage his interest sufficiently to make him want to continue. Yep. And I never forgot that. And that same level of compression that I really started to focus on along with the bones of the message matrix structure that I had learned from the great Dave Kellogg back at Business Objects came together into my version of the message matrix methodology. 
And so I continued to learn to write songs, but I also took that lesson of compression, of emotional connection, of you got 10 seconds to get their attention into product marketing. And in your story, as you were saying, he never got to the chorus. Mm-mm. I naturally asked, well, <laughs> how many customers and prospects of great companies never get to the chorus of the narrative that these companies are trying to bring to the market? And that's, uh, as a marketer, an equally, if not worse tragedy is that you're telling this great story, but you can't get to the heart of it that is really going to win hearts and minds with buyers. Exactly. Exactly. You don't control the buyer's journey. The buyer controls the buyer's journey. And so your job is to secure your interest sufficiently that they want to go to the next step. And you don't do that by giving them all the information at once. Just like, for example, a resume or a LinkedIn profile, the role of that isn't to get you the job. It's to get you the interest that leads to the contact that leads to the interview, that leads to the job. So knowing what each level of communication is for helps you avoid the worst tragedy, which is trying to stuff everything into the point where they never get to your chorus. Yeah. So I'm curious, do any signature growth moments come to mind where you look back on your career as a marketing leader? How did that signature growth moment help the business and how did it shape you as a leader today? Well, it it shaped me in the sense that lesson in compression from songwriting led me to go back to the message matrix structure with a greater understanding of just how sharp it needed to get. Mm-hmm. And when I applied for my first job at Oracle, after a year and a half where essentially I had mainly spent my time as a songwriter, I was up against people that were, had more recent relevant experience and were on paper absolutely better qualified. And I beat them out for the job by telling a sharper story by taking the material that I'd been asked to do as a test project and showing not only the sharper story, but showing how that story could be sharpened. In other words, this is the way I did it. This is the way we could do it for the next 10 products too. And so I got that job over people that were pretty obviously better qualified. And I would say that in many ways, that's when my marketing career, certainly my career as a messaging person really began because being able to do that and being able to help other people do it became my brand within the company. That's amazing. And so I imagine you were establishing some type of system that can flex to the needs of different products, offerings, campaigns and do it in a way that's accessible to other marketers to wrap their minds around and take the pen and help drive it forward in collaboration with you. Um, How did you see it start to really uh, gain momentum? Well, it was in several ways. It was what the description you gave of the collaboration is is very accurate because nobody is ever going to have the knowledge of 10 or 20 or 100 different product areas or industries right? So if you are interested in working on messaging repetitively, 
that's not what you have to rely on. You have to rely on structures and methodologies into which people that are expert in a particular industry or product can pour that expertise. So while initially I was working on a couple of products for which I was responsible, increasingly over time, what happened is I got asked to help people who were very expert in their particular industry or product, but hadn't necessarily spent their whole career as product marketers. They were there more for their industry expertise to help them sharpen what they knew about process manufacturing or solutions for running a power plant into a short, sharp message so that they could then gain permission from the customer to have the longer conversation, show that expertise that they had. So it must have been a growth moment on multiple levels, right? A growth moment for you in empowering others to understand the craft of sharpening storytelling, but also for your colleagues that you were working with and how they were kind of going through the process of finding their voice and recognizing that there's a lot of detail that has been top of mind for them that maybe is bringing a lot of noise to the story that they're trying to tell. And that at some point they need to let go of some of that noise to drive more traction with customers and prospects. And it is so hard if you are an expert in your field to do that. It's one of the reasons that people choose to have a collaborator who might not be expert in their field, but is expert in sorting out what is important for the customer to know at each point in the sales cycle and helping cut it out to that. I even have a slide in one of my presentations where as an industry expert or as a domain expert, it's sort of like they used to say in the old spy movies, you'll know too much. You know all of this detail about your solution. And what tends to happen is you violate one of the key principles of marketing, which is by default, nobody gives a damn about you. Right. Yeah. Start with the customer. Yes. Yes. And so now there may be a point where the industry expert is talking to the other industry expert and they're doing the Vulcan mind meld and da da da. And that's great when it happens. That's kind of when you get to the sales consultant level of, for example, an enterprise B2B engagement. But there are many steps, or at least a few important steps, toward getting permission to do that. And so to get the initial attention, your message has to be much sharper. And in order to be much sharper, it has to be stripped. After Oracle, you went on to lead marketing teams at firms such as Avpoint, as well as Metadata. And so how did your foundation in messaging serve you in the CMO role? Well, I think it served me in a couple of important ways. I think a marketing career, if you're going to wind up a CMO as having three main legs, right? Where there's product marketing kind of in in a sense at the center of everything, that's the story. And then there's the demand generation and digital marketing that generates demand, growth, sales. And then there's corp comms, AR, PR, how you get your, your brand message out. And I think that for people in your audience that are aspiring CMOs, they should look at how did they come up and then what additional pieces did they need to put in place? For most people to get to a CMO role, if the three legs are demand, product marketing, and comms, 
corporate marketing, you need to have decent chops in two of those three and that for somebody to be willing to take a chance on you for the top job. And then you can probably learn on the job or hire for the the third leg of the stool. But chances are you're going to need at least two. My strongest, obviously, was product marketing. Corp comms, since my father was a journalist and I'd done a lot of communications work, was a pretty natural adjacency. And then demand was kind of the area that, that I needed to fill in. Sure. Um, I would say that in evolving toward a CMO role, one of the things that a background in messaging and positioning gave me was the understanding that I needed to be expert in my function rather than in the particular industry, because yeah. I was interested in being, at the time anyway, in being a CMO, not specifically in the medical clinical trial software space, which was metadata, or the Microsoft cloud partner space, which was AvPoint, but being a CMO that could potentially go into any company, at least any company in enterprise B2B, and learn what I needed to about the domain. I think for aspiring marketers, you have to decide, is my strength going to be in the function, which I can do certain things repetitively in different industries, different areas, different kinds of companies, or is my expertise going to be in the industry? And I am going to go through perhaps different companies in that space, different jobs in that space, but what people will know me as is an expert in that industry. For me, it was the functional path. Yeah. Yeah. So that was one aspect of growth. So Jeffrey, after a number of years working in the role of CMO at different firms, you decided to come back to really double-clicking on the craft of messaging. You formed your company, Message Mechanics, working with other teams, working with other marketing leaders and CMOs to help them with their messaging needs. I'm curious, how did that transition back to a main focus of messaging work? And your earlier experience having worked in enterprises as the messaging leader, as well as CMO, how does that serve you today as a partner? Sure. Yeah. I would say that the main way that having been a CMO serves me as a brand message expert is I understand the uses to which the brand message will be put, uh, having actually been in that operating role. Um, a growth moment for me as a CMO, I would say, was perhaps realizing it wasn't what I wanted to do. I had reached the apex of what I thought I wanted in my career. Messaging had become my internal brand at Oracle through a number of different jobs, through leaving the company, through coming back as a VP. And I also, in between, did some consulting engagements with messaging between jobs that was the first incarnation of message mechanics. But then I attained what I thought was my goal, chief marketing officer of a public company and of a very interesting startup. And it turned out I wasn't crazy about it. Sure. And so then it was like, well, there's a growth moment. I've gotten what I thought I was climbing toward and boom, not so crazy about it. So what do I really love? What part of the job do I really love? And it was again, the messaging and positioning work. And yeah. so as a result of that, I spun up message mechanics that fairly quickly became successful. And 
And I realized here's another version of cut it down. I really can make a career and an impact doing only the parts of marketing that I like. Sure. Now, that said, having done the operating role, having also been responsible for the other parts of the business, it is helpful because I know what marketers and chief marketing officers go through. It's a tough job. In tech, it often tends to have a very short average tenure. Mm -hmm. And I would say that marketing may be unique among all professions in the sense that everybody thinks they can do your job. <laughs> right? You, you're, you, sure. you're a marketer. You understand exactly what I'm talking Absolutely. about. Absolutely. Right? <laughs> Right. Like, like, I don't think it, I can it's, take out it's, my own appendix, but I'm yeah, pretty it, sure my doctor thinks that he can do the website. <laughs> exactly. It's like, well, you're just writing a story, right? That, that seems so easy. And then it comes time to actually pick up a pen and write it. And you're saying, wow, there is so much out here that we have to come to terms with and decide how it all fits together in a way that is consumable turns out this is actually a lot harder than we thought it would be. And then on top of that, you have to navigate all of perhaps the varying agendas of stakeholders across the organization. That's a whole skill and craft in and of itself. So I completely have seen that phenomenon in play. I think many marketers will relate to that. And you're right. It's interesting how this is not just a marketing truth. This is a life truth that so often we get to the thing that we thought was the thing we really wanted. And maybe it's not what we wanted, but that doesn't mean it was a waste of time because we learned a lot along the way. Yes. And I would absolutely never want to say that my time as a CMO was a waste of time. It's given me tools that I use today. It's given me the perspective of the people that I work with. In message mechanics, if I'm not brought in by the CEO of the company, I'm usually brought in by the CMO or the leader of marketing for a business unit. And so it's obviously helpful to them if I understand the landscape that they need to navigate. And if I understand that getting positioning and messaging right is a political problem, not just a storytelling problem. I'm sure that's one of a number of key challenges that marketing leaders are wrestling with as they're starting to not just think about messaging, but their whole leadership agenda as marketing leaders. And yeah. I'm just curious, as marketing folks are beginning those journeys around a strategic messaging initiative, mm -hmm. what are some of the challenges that you see that they're facing and that they're wrestling with? And how do you start to partner with them to work through that? Sure. Well, I would say that the one of the fundamental challenges is if the messaging isn't clear, it's because disagreement is hidden within it. Sure. Long, boring messaging is usually the expression of lack of alignment in an organization. Right. Or, or writing by committee where everyone exactly. gets to take the pen and then suddenly we're saying everything and nothing at the same time. Yeah. It's, it's this long. It's like, like any document it's, if you create an agreement or for that matter, if countries create a treaty, that's like a hundred pages long, everybody can kind of take from it what they will. And I've seen 
that may keep the peace within an organization, but it doesn't create clarity because you're not willing to make any simple, clear statement. So I've seen models of messaging structures and documents that are much more complex and at least on the surface more sophisticated than the one that I promote. And the problem with them is you can say everything and therefore you wind up saying nothing. So right. when I'm doing message matrix work with a company, what I insist on is that the message matrix will be a single sentence positioning statement, three key messages, not four, five is right out as Monty Python used to say, and three proofs for each of those. It's not that that's all you're ever going to say, but that's all you're going to say first. Now, having that constraint and putting that constraint into a workshop setting actually forces people to get to clarity because yeah. you cannot hide disagreement in that. You cannot yeah. hide misalignment in that. And so I used to say that maybe 60% of the value of the work that we do together is the actual messaging and positioning itself. And 40% is the alignment we get from having worked on it together. Yeah. Over the years, I've come to think that proportion is actually reversed. And most of the value is from the alignment. I've had people come out of workshops and say, wow, we finally all have clarity on what it is we do and the direction we're going as a company, wow. which can make the workshops fairly contentious and painful, but it sure is fun to have the output and yeah. that level of clarity. So if a company has struggled for a year or two longer getting to clarity on their messaging, which therefore means they don't have necessarily complete clarity on their market positioning and perhaps even aspects of business strategy, if they don't have clarity in that period on their own, it's not because their executives aren't smart and it's not because their marketing leaders aren't smart. It's because there are other things at play that need to be resolved. Yeah. And so a messaging process can be a crucible for working out those issues. If you can't tell a clear story about what you're trying to do, you don't really have a clear strategy. And it's it's so interesting. I, I love this emphasis on constraints because fundamentally strategy is also about making choices. And yeah. by putting constraints in things like a messaging framework, you're actually forcing those choices to come to the surface, not get yes. buried underneath the, yes. the rug or the carpeting like, and kick the can down the road for another day. You're saying, no, in this workshop today, we are going to start to talk about how we're making those choices. And I relate to that also in one of the first classes I took in business school was really all about entrepreneurship and innovation and saying, actually, you get a lot more entrepreneurial and innovative thinking when you put constraints on teams and you tell them, hey, you've got to play within these guidelines or for instance, you have a deadline. You're not going to have a month to do this. You have a, a week to do this. You actually yes. end up getting much more focused, decisive thinking when you push for that. Yes. Yeah. To go back to the songwriting metaphor for a minute, we used to do exercises where we would basically pick three random words and need to create a song that was written around those. 
And it sounds silly, but those constraints really helped a lot. Sometimes by coming up with a pretty good song, sometimes by just building muscles of being able to deal with those constraints. And so likewise, in a messaging process, there are constraints, for example, by saying we're going to have a one sentence positioning statement that expresses our core value, and it's not going to be any longer than that. And we're going to have three key messages. We're not going to have 10. It actually forces you to think about what is most important, not, I think they say in like the agile methodologies and such, not that other things aren't important, but what things are more important. So Jeffrey, uh, I'm curious, you uh, have spoken about working with a diverse set of clients ranging from startups to Fortune 100. Yeah. And I'm curious, does the messaging process, the challenges around messaging that teams are facing tend to lean in one direction versus the other if you're working with teams at different growth stages of their company? In some ways, yes. If you're working with a startup, you're almost certainly doing positioning on the whole company and what is often at the moment, at least a single product or their first line extensions. If you're working in a large enterprise or if I'm working in a large enterprise, usually it's more at a, a business unit level or a product level. So it's kind of more departmental, but the fundamental challenges do tend to be the same. There is literally always too much to say. There's literally always too much detail and value to describe, and you have to push it. You have to cut it down. The political landscape of large and small companies may vary you know, considerably, but I would say that in terms of pattern matching, the fundamental things are always the same. If we're establishing a brand new space, we have to educate people about the whole idea of the thing itself. Yeah. Whereas if we're going into a well-established landscape, we have to explain how our version of that thing is different than somebody else's version of that thing. In other words, am I explaining to people what a car is for the first time? Yeah. Or am I explaining why my Tesla or my Ford or whatever is better than the competition in some specific way? Sure. And so those patterns tend to repeat. So I would say fundamentally, it is the same at different levels of growth. Yeah, I I agree. I think the fundamentals, the the structure of the storytelling is very similar. I would say in my own personal experience, I think the stakeholder management can sometimes be a lot different. I think that, that is true. startups, you tend to have more of a bias towards action and decisiveness and the team is always rubbing shoulders together every day in the trenches. Mm. Whereas I think at a large global corporation, sometimes you'll see that there are different business leaders and marketing leaders who may work at the same company, but the businesses that they work on and the agendas that they have are pretty contained within their world. And mm. oftentimes marketing has the important role of kind of bringing everyone together to tell an integrated story as an integrated company. And so that process of integration can sometimes be a heavier lift with large enterprises. And by virtue of that, you also have to navigate more disparate agendas and find ways to kind of bring them together. 
I would agree with that. Yes, certainly my experience at large companies does indicate that. So Jeffrey, moving to learnings for today and tomorrow, what's mm-hmm. the best marketing advice you were ever given? Cut it down. It can sometimes be counterintuitive, both culturally and in our own instincts as human beings and, and workers in the modern workplace. <laughs> that less can be more. And Finally, how would you distill your growth experience and learnings as a couple pieces of advice to our listeners that they can walk away from this episode with? Well, start all marketing from the assumption that nobody cares about you. Give them enough reason to care just a little because it's going to help them and keep that focus. Fundamentally, as marketers and storytellers, we have to start from a place of why would they care? What's in it for them? How do we stay customer centric? Then once we've built that interest and credibility, we can start to pay it off with the things that we're bringing to market. Exactly. That was the sharp lesson that came from my little sojourn in pop songwriting was there's no switching costs on the radio. You've got seconds to get people's attention and they may be willing to listen after that, but you've got to start with the hook. And so if you keep that perspective, uh, by default, there is no reason for people to care about me. I have to give them a reason to. Then that is a signpost that you can basically create all messaging and marketing from. Absolutely. Well, Jeffrey, this has been a wonderful conversation. I really enjoyed your insights on messaging, marketing, leadership, growth, and really appreciate the time. And we'll be excited to bring this conversation to our community in LinkedIn and keep the conversation going there. So thanks so much again. All right. Well, thank you, Michael. It's been a pleasure talking with you.